Amen. You can go ahead and have a seat uh, this morning. And as you find your seats, I'm going to invite you uh, to turn with me in your Bible to Titus chapter 1. And we're going to be looking at verses 10 through 16 together this morning. If you're here today as our guest, my name's Taylor and I serve here at Cross as lead pastor. And what we've been doing as a church family for the last couple of weeks is we've been walking verse by verse through the book of Titus in a message series called Common Faith. So today, again, looking Titus 1 verses 10 through 16. We're picking right back up where we left off last week at the end of verse nine, and Lord willing, we're gonna be here together for about three more weeks. And uh, when I woke up this morning, I had a, a very different um, uh, approach in mind for the introduction of the message today. And, uh, and, and we just had the weirdest occurrence take place uh, at our home this morning, early this morning. And, and the Lord just kind of in a crazy way used this to speak to my heart, and it just seemed to make sense for where we were going today. And so I wanted to share this with you. Uh, many of you know we're in the process, our family is, of uh, building a home right now. And so we sold our house a couple months ago and our new house is taking a little bit longer than planned. Kind of that's how it is in construction world right now. And so we're living in, a, in an apartment for uh, a short period of time for a few more weeks. And I'm up early this morning and I'm, I'm by creature of habit. I love the early morning. And so I'm up about 5.30 this morning. I've got a cup of coffee and I've got my Bible open. I'm reading our text for today. I'm going over our notes for this morning. And it took me a couple of, uh, of seconds to, to wrap my head around what was happening happening, but at 5.30 this morning, someone tried to make their way into our apartment. And um, I, that was, you know, it, it just, it, I don't, I was still, I guess, getting the cobwebs out of my head. I'm like, time out. Okay, that's not Emily, because she's asleep in the bedroom. Don't think that my eight, six, or four-year-old snuck out, locked the door behind them, and is now trying to come back in. And so, like, I jump up. Like, I'm, I'm just looking at the door around the corner. Now, you know, I, I don't think it was anything malicious. I'm pretty sure it was a, a, a drill instructor neighbor who maybe got in very, very late and stumbled upon the wrong door. Uh, and then ran off very, very quickly. But it just, it really shook me for a second. It got the adrenaline pumping. It got my heart pumping. And, and I just sat there thinking, I, I just stood there. I was like, what would I have done if someone had actually come through the door this morning? Like we've got like 80, 90% of our stuff in a, in a storage pod right now. And we're living out of boxes for the summer. And I'm like, okay, there's I've got the option of steak knives in the kitchen and a vacuum cleaner by the door. You know, I'm like what on earth would I have done if somebody had busted into our home this morning? Like I would have been completely caught off guard. And, and in the same way, I, I think we as a church, we have to be asking ourselves, are, are we prepared for intruders who try to make their way into the body of Christ? Are, are we prepared to recognize those who don't belong here? Are we prepared to recognize those whose uh, motives are wrong and whose intent is malicious, who intend to cause great harm to the name of Jesus Christ and to the people uh, of Jesus Christ? So when we get into verse 10 of Titus chapter 1, leaving where we left off last week, last week we saw the qualifications for leaders within the church, those who hold the office of pastor, elder within the body of Christ. And, and so Paul gives to Titus and he also gives to Timothy this very uh, clear set of criteria for anybody who would hold the title the office of pastor elder within the body of Christ. But today we're going to see the contrast. Last week we saw the qualifications for those who were serving in ministry. Today we see the disqualifications. And this morning, church, it's a, a bit of a heavy title for someone like me uh, because I realize the type of risk that it even puts me at personally this morning. But today in Titus 1, we're going to see the profile of an unsaved pastor. We're going to see the profile of someone who holds a leadership position 
within the body of Christ, but lacks the qualifications to hold that position. And so uh, if you're following along in your notes this morning, I wanted to to read this for us. This is from uh, Charles Spurgeon. This is almost a couple centuries old now uh, from his classic book, Lectures to My Students. So this was really given to those who were part of his pastor's college. And, And he talks about the dangers of those who are serving in ministry, but are unqualified to be serving in the capacities that they hold. He says that a teacher of the gospel must first be a partaker of it is a simple truth, but at the same time, a rule of the most weighty importance. No amount of fees paid to learn doctors and no amount of classics received in return appear to us to be evidences of a call from above. True and genuine piety is necessary as the first and indispensable requisite. Whatever call a man may pretend to have, if he has not been called to holiness, he certainly has not been called to the ministry. Better abolish pulpits than fill them with men who have no experiential knowledge of what they preach. Last week in Titus 1 verse 5, we saw that Paul had left Titus in Crete to put what remained into order. There was a foundation of gospel ministry that had been laid, but Paul was giving instruction to Titus as a young pastor to stay there and to straighten things out. And the first order of business was to appoint qualified leaders, and as we'll see today, uh, to remove unqualified leaders. So again, last week we saw the biblical qualifications for pastors and elders, and we saw very clearly that among that long list of qualifications, only one of them had anything to do with gifting, and that one was fairly benign. The one that had to do with gifting as a pastoral qualification just said very simply, able to teach. And everything else had to do with the character. So it's, it's not about education. It's not about uh, delivery. It's not about preaching ability. It's not about style. It's not about personality. God's word lays out for us very clear qualifications for the character of those who hold the office of pastor elder. And over the last couple of weeks, we've talked about how the message all the way through Titus is how what we believe and what we preach has to shape what we practice and how we behave. Otherwise, we may betray any confidence that we have the true gospel of Jesus Christ. And if we're going to not just preach a gospel message, but preserve a gospel culture within the body of Christ, foundational to this is having qualified leadership. So if you're following along your notes this morning, what we're going to see as we work through verses 10 through 16 this morning is that unqualified leaders are the greatest threat to gospel doctrine and gospel culture. This is the greatest threat to this in the body of Christ. And it's the responsibility of the church, listen, to be ready to be prepared to silence those whose preaching and practice are dishonorable to the Lord. So again, today we're going to see a glimpse of an unsaved pastor, someone who who claims to know the Lord, but who denies him by their works and their lifestyle. And we're going to see how we as followers of Christ should respond when they find their way in. So from Titus 1, let's read together this morning, verses 10 through 16. Remember verses five through nine, Paul has already given the qualifications for godly elders, and now he's going to create a contrast here. He says, for there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they're upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and commands of the people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. 
but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. So we see first this morning, the first characteristic of an unsafe pastor is divisive legalism. Paul says in verse 10 that there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially of the circumcision party. Now, you might remember from a couple of weeks back, this is uh, Paul and Titus have been ministering together on this small island called Crete. And there was a group of teachers there known as the Judaizers. Now, we're familiar with these guys and with the story of Titus from Acts chapter 15. This is uh, known to us as the Jerusalem Council. This is the first major dispute within the early church. And what was being disputed was whether or not Gentile converts, in addition to their faith in Jesus Christ, were going to be required to follow the strict requirements of the Jewish Mosaic law, most specifically the practice of circumcision. That was the covenant sign that God had given to the nation of Israel as a physical sign to show that they were his chosen people, holy and set apart from among the rest of the nations. But Titus himself was a Gentile convert and Paul uses him there in Acts 15 kind of as the case study to show us that the power of the gospel was not limited among the Gentile believers. But there remains this group known as the Judaizers who continue to add all of the works of the Jewish Mosaic law on top of faith in Jesus Christ. And so it's this legalism of adding works to the message of the gospel that Paul is standing here uh, to oppose in these first few verses. Now, unlike uh, the godly elders who are above reproach, we're told that false teachers are insubordinate. They're unwilling to to receive rebuke. They're unwilling to come under the authority of anyone else. Uh, Last week, we saw very briefly three models of flawed leadership within the church. I shared this with you uh, from Bob Thune's book, Gospel Eldership. And the first two of those models that we looked at, the anointed leader, kind of this is God's man, he's not to be questioned model, and the model of leadership where there's no local accountability in the church, it's only outside of the church. Both of these create an environment that is ripe for insubordinate people. If someone has uh, no one around them who can hold them accountable, who can rebuke, who can speak truth in their lives, who can correct them, that creates uh, very easily an environment where it's easy for relational and spiritual disaster to unfold. So we see that, that those who are unqualified from service as pastors, elders within the local church, they're insubordinate. That they're not willing to receive correction from anyone. They can't be told anything. They can't ever be told that they're wrong that they're not gonna have authority that's over them in any capacity. Paul says that they're insubordinate. He also says that they're empty talkers. Now, th- this language, empty talker, it, it means exactly how it sounds. Literally, their, their words just carry no weight. It's shallow, it's superficial, their teaching is man-centered, they're focusing on all these extra works of the law beyond the message of the gospel, and so it's empty. It's, it's completely empty. Um, I'm just curious, show of hands this morning, uh, that this has been a story in the news the last couple of weeks. How many of you were familiar with the comedian Norm MacDonald, who, who passed away to serve the last couple of weeks? You know, Saturday Night Live, Live fans, especially from the 90s, I mean, Norm was just kind of that master of, of dry humor that was on, on the set there. And he, he passed away. He had a, a very private battle with cancer for about a decade. And there's these, all these stories that are emerging about how much Norm was exploring the faith. And uh, many have even gone as far to say that he uh, had professed faith in Jesus Christ and that he was walking with the Lord before uh, he, he passed away. And I read this really fascinating interview with Norm MacDonald from, from Uh, from a while back this past week. And he was talking about as he was exploring the faith, uh, he had a number of different leaders who were influential in his life. And and one of them uh, was a Jewish rabbi. 
Um, and so, you know, not a follower of Christ, but uh, had he just, you know, was drawn to this, this depth uh, of his knowledge and of, of his understanding, the weights that his words carried, there was just this, this reverence in his approach to the scripture and his handling of God's word. But this is what he said about his pastor. I don't know where he went to church. I don't know who this pastor was, but this is what he said about his pastor. He goes, my pastor doesn't know anything. And I mean anything. He said his sermons are always uh, how to be a nice fella or some nonsense like that. Like there was just no depth. There was no depth. There was no substance. There was nothing that, that transcended the things of this world. It was all just kind of man-centered, shallow, superficial. And man, sadly, like that's where a lot of modern preaching has gone. Like there's very little gospel. There's very little of Christ. There's very little of the word of God. It's always pointing the solution back towards ourselves. And church, we got to remember like the reason we're here in the first place is because we can't do it ourselves. Like we needed someone else to, to do it for us. And so when, when we uh, preach in such a way that it's, it's always man-centered, we're only addressing felt needs and just focusing on the here and now, not putting our eyes towards Christ, this is empty. Uh, Paul also says of these false teachers that they're deceivers. So they're liars. They've got you thinking one thing, but in truth, they're something totally different from what they are. And that this is how they reveal themselves. In verse 11, he, he goes on to say that they must be silenced. And the reason they must be silenced is because they're upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. So beyond uh, having um, divisive legalism as a marker, second, we see this morning that they had detestable motives. They were teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. Now, simply put, these guys are in it for the money. It really just comes down to this. And, and what we have to understand about the types of teachers that are being described here in Titus chapter one, church, this is a hook for us even today. Legalism sells. Legalism sells. And we ask, well, why is it? Well, when you preach a message of guilt instead of a message of grace, you can fear monger people into being generous with their money. Like when you have a group of people who are convinced that their holiness and their righteousness is dependent on what they do for God, instead of what God has done for them, yeah, we'll be extremely generous. It'll be out of begrudging submission. We might drag ourselves into it and we, we, we might, you know, just, just kind of force ourselves to, to be generous, but that's not what the Lord's after. The, the Lord's not after our begrudging submission. He wants us just the way Cole talked about it a little bit earlier, that our giving, man, it's, it's a response to the gospel. It's out of joy. It's out of the fact of knowing that, man, God has provided everything for me in Jesus Christ. So, and so I joyfully, in response to that, want to give everything that I am to him. But that wasn't the culture that was being set up here. When you can get people believing that God's grace for them is contingent on how much they give to him, you can get people to do just about anything. Man, if you, you don't believe me, just look at what's unfolding, particularly in in third world impoverished cultures right now, uh, in persecuted cultures where it's, it's difficult for followers of Jesus Christ. Um, I shared this story, I think a couple years ago, but um, a few years back, we, we had a brother who visited with our church family. He's uh, from a country where that is hostile to the gospel. He serves as a pastor there. He's from that, from that region. And um, he worshiped with us one Sunday morning. We sat down one day, we had lunch at Sea Eagle and, uh, and just we're having a conversation with one another. And, and I just asked him, I was like, what, what is your greatest challenge? Like in, in a culture where you are facing opposition and hostility towards your faith. And his, his answer mesmerized me. He, he didn't say the greatest threat to the advance of the gospel was like radical Islam, although that's a major threat. He didn't say that it was persecution and opposition from the government, although that's a major threat. They've just come to expect that now. He said, this is our greatest threat right now. It, it's this Western message of prosperity that's infiltrating our culture. 
It's the prosperity gospel that's being exported from the United States to these closed countries with the gospel because, because this is what the message says. Hey, if you give this much, God will do this for you in return. And so this is what it is, the way, the way that it's built. Yeah, if you'll, you'll give this much, you give 20% of your income, give 30% of your income, the more you give, the less persecution you will experience. The more you give, the less trouble you will face. Man, look at what's happening. This is happening in Africa. I mean, all over right now. Yeah, you give this much of your money, your crops won't die. Your wives won't miscarry. You won't face any trouble. Your children won't die of starvation. The Lord will take care of you. And so families will literally bankrupt themselves trying to earn the presence and the favor of God. And so listen to, to me just loud and clear this morning. If you are in Christ, you ha already have everything you need. Like that's not contingent on how much we give to him. And listen, that's actually why we want to give because he's already given us everything. It's not to get more. It's because we've already received everything we need in Christ. That becomes our foundation for giving. But these false teachers that, that Paul is rebuking here that remain prevalent even in our culture today, their motivation was money. You know, it's on a little bit of a lighter note, but you see this uh, online. Like there's this uh, the kind of a, it started sort of as a silly thing, but it's become sort of a serious thing. Uh, it's this Instagram account called Preachers and Sneakers. I don't really know what to do with this. I'm just kind of a, a boots guy, I guess. Like I'm not a big shoe guy, but there's this whole movement of pastors nationwide right now who, who just have it in them to like preach in a brand new pair of very expensive, very rare sneakers every single week. Like literally every single week. You can follow this account. The guy kind of chronicles the guys who are doing this on a weekly basis. And we look at that, it's like, okay, it's kind of silly. Like, is it, is it really wrong, you know, for a guy to preach in a pair of Jordans? I don't think it is. But when, when someone's preaching in a new pair of $1,000 shoes every single week, I think at some point in time, we got to start asking some questions about what their motives are. Like, I think we really have to at least pay attention and say, you know, that seems just a little bit off. Well, what does that action reveal about what they're really in this for? Paul says we have to be tuned into this. We have to be tuned into those whose motivation very simply is money. I want you to turn with me in your Bible. Uh, we're going to go Old Testament here for just a second. Ezekiel 34, and uh, we're going to read verses 1 through 10. And, and I want to read this passage because I want us to see that th these false teachers, those who would devour God's people, who are taking advantage of God's people, like, this is not just a phenomenon of 20th and 21st century televangelism. I mean, this has been going on as long as God's people have been a people. But what we have to understand this morning, church, is that these actions do not escape the eye of the Lord. We can expect that he's going to hold his leaders, he's going to hold his shepherds accountable when they fail to lead as they're called to lead. So this is Ezekiel 34. I'm going to read verses 1 through 10. Ezekiel says, the word of the Lord came to me. He said, son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God. So we pay attention anytime we see those words in scripture, right? Like anytime that thus saith the Lord appears, we, we need to lock in on what's happening. Thus says the Lord God, ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves. This is the indictment. You've been feeding yourselves. Should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak, you have not strengthened. The sick, you have not healed. The injured, you have not bound up. The strayed, you have not brought back. The lost, you have not sought. And with force and harshness, you have ruled them. Here's the result. He says, so they were scattered. 
because there was no shepherd and they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. They wandered over all the mountains and on every high hill. My sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth with none to search or seek for them. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As I live, declares the Lord God, surely because my sheep have become a prey and because my sheep have become food for all the wild beasts since there was no shepherd and because my shepherds have not searched for my sheep, but the shepherds have fed themselves and not fed my sheep. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, behold, I am against the shepherds and I will require my sheep at their hand and, stop up to the, and put a stop to their feeding of the sheep. No longer shall the shepherds feed themselves. I will rescue my sheep from their mouths that they may not be food for them. You know, when I, I read passages like this, I'll just be honest. I mean, these last two weeks, you talk about two messages that, that have been extremely humbling to both prepare and to preach. Like it's, it's not lost on me that passages like this are, are talking about people like me talking about our pastors on our staff, talking about our elders who have been called to, to shepherd this local congregation. Like we take these things seriously. We feel that weight. We take it seriously when God's word tells us that we will be judged at a higher standard than everybody else. We take these things seriously. We feel that weight. We understand that that's, that's unique. It's not to elevate us above everybody else. It's just to, to, to let God's word stand on its own and understand, hey, that this is going to come at a cost to us if we don't do this faithfully. We, we have to understand, church, when there are those who use and abuse the name of Jesus Christ for the building up of themselves and their own personal kingdoms, it should rightly cause some indignation in our hearts. But understand, this will not in eternity escape the justice of the Lord. I will be called to account. We will all be called to account who are called to lead and to shepherd God's people. And we have to be on the lookout for those whose motives are less than pure. Paul goes on to say in verses 12 through 14, back in Titus 1, he says, uh, one of the Cretans, so we'll talk about who this is in just a second, a little bit of a stereotype and a generalization here. He says, one of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. And Paul's response is basically, and he's pretty much right, is what he goes on to say. Verse 13, he says, their testimony is true. And so he's now speaking of the false teachers. He says, therefore rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. So the third characteristic we see this morning of unsaved pastors are deceived minds. Now, uh, in verse 12, this is kind of funny here, verses 12 and 13, Paul is quoting the Cretan philosopher Epimenides. And, and it was Epimenides who said of his own people on the tiny island of Crete, he said, Cretans are liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. Uh, Cicero recorded that Cretans considered highway robbery to be morally upright. They saw that as a good thing. I mean, this is Wild West out here. There's another anonymous source, uh, unknown source, who said to the people of Crete, the men on Crete, it said the absence of wild animals was offset by the presence of the men who lived there. Dad to three boys, I understand that. That's a very relevant reference to me. Like that, their, their presence made up for the lack of wild animals. Through the first century context, uh, slang to Crete meant to lie. If you were telling a lie, you were creting in, in that moment. We've seen through history that cretin has been used as a derogatory term to refer to those uh, with barbaric or immoral behavior. And Paul is saying here, this applies to the false teachers who were there. 
He says, this is who they guys, the, the, these guys are. He says, they're liars because they preach a false gospel of works in addition to the finished work of Jesus Christ. They're evil beasts. They have no regard for the people that they're harming. They're lazy gluttons. They're earning a paycheck at the expense of God's people. I'm going to tell you a dirty little secret this morning that I told the first service. And, and I realize, again, this is one of those things kind of even puts me at risk, but it's just the simple truth. Uh, I, I've worked in private sector. I've been in the military. I've held jobs for as long as I've been able and allowed to work and old enough to work. And, and I just tell you very openly this morning that there is no easier place on planet Earth for a lazy, undisciplined person to hide than pastoral ministry. Right, it breaks my heart. And, and you ask me, how could that possibly be? Like, like, how is it those who are called to be shepherds of God's people could, could hide out and just kind of use that to collect a paycheck and really just be lazy, undisciplined people who don't do a whole lot of stuff at all? Well, here's how it works. You know, like our staff environment, you know, we, it's, it's not like a nine to five job. You know, we don't like show up and then punch in and then clock out and go home and just leave it there. Like we're, we're kind of on call 24 seven. So there's a whole lot of stuff that's happening at really weird times. So even in the last couple of weeks, I've had multiple mornings, uh, meetings at like 5.30, 6 o'clock in the morning, some later into the evening, going as late as 9, 9.30. We're making calls at weird times, doing stuff on weekends. So it's just, it's not just kind of like this check-in, check-out, go home, that's it, you leave it there. It goes with you. And so what this creates is an environment where, you know, our, our administrative staff, for the most part, they're the anchors of our office, but our pastoral ministerial staff, we're kind of all over the place. And you guys know this, like we're, we're meeting with you or we're, we're doing outreach in the community. We're building evangelistic relationships. We're, uh, we're, we're preparing and, and executing ministry initiatives throughout the course of the week, which means it's, it's a whole lot of touch and go and hit and miss throughout the course of the week, which is why like for all of our staff job descriptions for pastoral ministerial staff, it's written in there. You have to be able to work for extended periods of time without anybody looking over your shoulder. And just have the discipline to get done what needs to get done. Because of this, this constant kind of we're here, we're there, everywhere mentality, it's easy for someone to hide under that and to take advantage of that freedom and not be doing a whole lot. And sadly, man, I've seen it as a part of churches that, that, we, that I've been a part of, staffs that I've been a part of. It's, it's known to our, our staff on the way in. It's like, look, you, you better not be allergic to work because you're going to have a really difficult time here. But that, that's what Paul is rebuking in this, this moment. It's those who would take advantage of that freedom because again, here's the sad reality. False teachers know that the people of God will be faithful even when they're not. And they'll take advantage of this. We have to be tuned into this. And Paul rebukes this type of mentality. He says that they were devoted to myths. Now, we don't know exactly that the types of myths that Paul is speaking against in this moment, but it, it was, again, just based on what he said earlier, whatever they were teaching, it was just empty. It was superficial. It maybe helped you feel good in just a moment. They, they would tell often these uh, kind of fantasized, fanciful type tales and stories that were really disconnected from the Bible. You know, good modern day example of this, it was, uh, I think about 10, 11 years ago now, this book came out, you know, the boy who came back from heaven. And so the story was that, you know, this kid had, had died in a freak accident. He'd gone to heaven, but then he returned and it came back. His dad wrote a book. It sold a lot of copies. Well, then around 2015, 2016, this kid came out and was like, yeah, I made it all up. It wasn't a real story. I mean, just totally made it up. But man, what do Christians in our culture do? We, we eat this stuff up. Like we'll, we'll, we'll buy the books, we'll go to conferences, we'll make movies about all of it. We just elevate all of this. And we, just, we do this really weird thing, particularly here in the West, where it's like, we're always trying to go beyond the word of God. Like that's not quite enough. And listen, it's not that we shouldn't do apologetic work and look for factual things in the real world to substantiate the claims of our faith. But at some point in time, we gotta be able to hear stuff and say, you know what? I think that's nonsense. When we have clear passages of scripture that show us that no one has ascended to heaven and returned. 
Like we've got to be able to evaluate this against the word of God and understand that there are those who mean to take advantage of this, who mean to use this to their personal gain. We need to be wise and discerning and be on the lookout for those whose minds have been deceived. Paul uh, closes out this passage, verses 15 and 16. He says here, to the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any good works. The fourth characteristic we see this morning of unsaved pastors are defiled lives. Paul says it so clearly. They profess to know God. God, but they deny him by their works. They preach, but they don't practice. They believe, say they believe, but they don't behave. It's gospel doctrine, but as we saw two weeks ago, it's not gospel culture. They profess to know God, but deny him by their works. I want to look at two passages of scripture, uh, just back to back here for just a moment. The first is going to be uh, the words of Jesus from Matthew chapter 15. So I want to encourage you to turn with me to Matthew 15, and we're going to read here quickly verses 10 through 20. And then from there, we're going to go straight over to Colossians chapter 2, and we're going to read together verses 20 through 23. So again, uh, Matthew 15, 10, and then from there, we're going to go straight over to Colossians chapter 2. And Jesus is going to speak to this. This, this really sheds light on the words of Paul when he's talking about how to the pure, uh, all things are pure, but to the defiled and the unbelieving, nothing is pure. Because those who were, were entrenched in this heavy-handed legalism, uh, they didn't measure righteousness the way we should from the inside out. They measured their righteousness from the outside in. It was coming up with all these uh, extra biblical sets of rules. It was works added to the finished work of Jesus Christ. And it was by these list of works that they measured their own personal righteousness. But here's how Jesus speaks to it. Matthew 15 says, he called the people to him and said to them, hear and understand. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a person. Then the disciples came and said to him, did you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? Jesus is basically like, I don't really care. Verse 13, he answered, every plant that my heavenly father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone, they are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. But Peter said to him, explain the parable to us. So again, you know, Peter's a guy, he's a fisherman. He's, uh, he's, he's moving a little bit slow here. And so Jesus is really gonna break this down Barney style for Peter. And he's going to speak in a way that Peter is a grown man can really understand. And this is about exactly what you think it's about. Jesus says in verse 17, okay, Peter, do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? Peter's like, got it. He understands that language. Jesus says, but what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These, Jesus says, are what defile a person. It's not the things that are causing you to sin from the outside in. The problem is we are sinners from the inside out. And we take the good gifts that God's given and we abuse them to our own detriment. He says, these are what defile a person, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. Now, uh, go over to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians 2, and again, uh, verses 20 to 23, and Paul is going to shed a little bit more light on this here, about how uh, we tend to, in our flesh, find superficial ways of measuring our own holiness and righteousness. 
Colossians 2, verses 20 through 23. Paul says, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. Paul says, these indeed have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value to stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Church, this is the lie of legalism. The lie of legalism is that you can be made righteous from the outside in, but the message of the gospel is not that you're made righteous from the outside in, it's that we are made righteous from the inside out. We are not made pure and and our purity is not based on what we taste, what we touch, what we experience, but from the inside out as our hearts are being transformed by the message of the gospel. It's not outside influences that make us sin, it's that we are sinners and we take outside influences and we use them to our own detriment against God's will and against God's word. This is why, again, when you get into really heavy-handed legalistic environments, this is the type of culture that that can produce. This is what happens when we focus more on outside-in than we do inside-out. We'll wind up with a culture where you've got a room full of people, never touched a drop of alcohol in their life, which is all well and good if that's your choice, but many times you don't have to because you're drunk on gossip, envy, and slander. You see, it's it's a lot easier to have the external measure of, I've never had a single drink, than the internal measure of, I'm not killing my own sin. And so we'll base our holiness and our righteousness based on our ability to keep up with a rule. You might say, I've never missed a Sunday. We're there every single time the doors are open. We've got our Bibles open. We're singing praises to Jesus. That might be true. And then you go home and yell at your wife and kids all week long. It's easier to have the external measure than it is to deal internally with your own sin. You might say, I I give faithfully 10% of my tithe every single week for the building up of the church, but internally we might even have a a hatred or deep disdain for those who are poor. It's easy to have the external measure and not the internal killing of sin. You might say, I vote for conservative values, but we never address the lust and the anger and the envy that's in our own hearts. It's so easy to prop up external standards and measures of righteousness. That's why Paul says these things have the appearance of wisdom. They have the appearance of wisdom, but it's all false religion. It's all false. It's completely superficial. It has absolutely no transformative power and value in our lives. So so let's let's be clear here because we don't want to be like antinomian in this. We don't want to just push away any good works whatsoever. Understand, like a life transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ will result in good works. We we tracking on that? Like it it will result in transform, a transformed life will result in good works, but it's not our good works that lead to our transformation. The question that we have to ask ourselves, like how are you basing your faith in Jesus Christ? Is is the gospel propelling you to works or are you trusting your works for your salvation? Because one is false religion and one is good and, and true religion that's intended for us by God through his son, Jesus Christ. False teachers that their works don't profess faith in Christ. Their works profess faith in themselves. They deny him by their work. So we asked the question this morning, how can we distinguish false teachers from godly elders? Like, how can we uh, be aware? How can we know that the intruder is trying to make his way into our home? Well, this is where we're going to go back to where we left off last week. 
So in verses five through nine, Titus one, we see the characteristics of godly elders. And then we also paired that with first Timothy three, very similar letter that Paul wrote uh, to Timothy, who was another young pastor. And we took last week and we just worked very quickly through all of uh, the qualifications and characteristics of godly elders and pastors within the body of Christ. And what Paul's done this week is he's created a contrast. And if you just go straight down this list, it almost creates a perfect one for one of qualifications from disqualifications. So let's work through this together here very quickly. So this is false teachers from Titus 1 uh, in comparison to godly elders from Titus 1 and 1 Timothy 3. So false teachers, Paul says, are insubordinate, but godly elders are above reproach. False teachers are empty talkers. Godly elders are not arrogant or quarrelsome. False teachers are deceivers, but godly elders rebuke false doctrine. False teachers teach for shameful gain. Godly elders are not greedy for gain. False teachers are liars. Godly elders give instruction in sound doctrine. False teachers are evil beasts. Godly elders are not quick-tempered, drunkards, or violent. False teachers are lazy. Godly teachers and elders are disciplined. False teachers are devoted to myths. Godly elders are sober-minded. False teachers are impure. Godly elders are holy. False teachers deny God by their works. Godly elders are upright. False teachers are detestable. Godly elders are respectable. False teachers are disobedient. Godly elders are lovers of good. False teachers are unfit for any good work, and godly elders hold firm to the trustworthy word. This is why we need God's word. He, he has shown us very plainly and very clearly those who are qualified to lead his church and those who are disqualified from leaving this church. So, so I want to look here just as we close out this morning, just what, what is our response to this? Like, how do we do this? Because I could see as you're sitting there this morning, it's like, okay, I'm not a pastor. I'm not an elder. Like, how, how does this apply to me? Well, well number one, uh, you're a part of a body of Christ. You are a follower of Jesus. And you need to understand what you are looking for and are not looking for when it comes to leaders of Christ's church. Amen. Like, like you need to be tuned into that. You need to have a clear understanding of who's qualified and who's not qualified. And so uh, here's how we can respond with this this morning. So first challenge is this, is examine leaders by evaluating their doctrine and their lives. It's not enough to just hear it like, hey, that's good teaching. That's sound doctrine. That's good theology. Like it's possible to have all of that, but not have character that corresponds. And that's what we have to be in tune to. So this is why Paul says to Timothy, 1 Timothy 4.16, he exhorts him, keep a close watch on yourself and your teaching. Because either one can be disqualifying. It's not just like if you depart from sound doctrine, it also be just depart from godly character. Keep a close eye on yourself and your teaching. Go on, 1 Timothy 5. Actually, it gives instructions for how you can hold accountable those who lead within the body of Christ. Two, three witnesses, man, they see a glaring deficiency in a pastor and an elder in the church. Like there's steps for how uh, to bring to account those uh, who are not faithfully upholding what they've been called to do according to God's word. It just cannot be overstated that sound doctrine is not enough. Do we need to have sound doctrine? Absolutely, yes, but sound doctrine is not enough. The shepherds of Israel and the Pharisees of the Jewish people were called blind guides. Church, listen, you need to understand this this morning. Even pastors can be lost. And Paul speaks to it right here. Profess to know God, but deny him by their works. So we have to be careful not just to examine the message that someone preaches, but the type of life that lives that they live. Second, what we see our responsibility as the body of Christ to silence leaders whose teaching and motives are proven to be impure. 
This has been given to us. So again, you, you might say like, well, I feel kind of helpless in that. Again, I'm, I'm, not a, I'm not a pastor, I'm not an elder within the church, so, so what can I do to make sure false teachers are silenced? Well, you know, th- this is the unique uh, dynamic of our culture today, is, is that we have that, this dynamic of preaching without proximity. And what I mean by that is like, you can go online, like it's not lost on me this morning, like you could have stayed home this morning and just listened to like John Piper or Tim Keller, and I wouldn't totally blame you. These guys are way better than me. I listen to them a lot too. Like it's not lost on me that we, we can do this, but what can easily happen is we, we just kind of latch on to someone who's teaching that we really like, we really identify with, but, but we're disconnected from them in terms of proximity. There's no relationship that's there. So we really don't have a lot of evidence for understanding, does the preaching actually meet the practice? Does the belief actually uh, result in corresponding behavior? Uh, Emily and I had a, a close friend this is several years ago, and uh, we, we'd gotten close to he and, and his wife, and I've known him a, a good bit of my life, and, um, and so he had been kind of following this church online and uh, really engaged what they were doing. They had started attending there on a, on a semi-regular basis. Well, an employment opportunity opened up. Now, uh, I won't get into all of it, but I had some real concerns about this church, and particularly the pastor that was leading the church, and I just tried to lovingly speak into that, and, and he was just convinced. He was like, nah, this is it. This is solid. That This is where we're going. But, but he got in, he spent a few years on staff there and learned the very hard way, the hardest of ways, that the, the culture did not match the preaching, that the behavior did not match at least the stated belief. And the result was, guys, that he didn't just walk away from the church staff, he walked away from Jesus. I mean, my heart's just been so heavy for him. And for so many others who, man, that has been their experience. It's, it's not, the issue wasn't the message that was being preached. The message is that the church didn't have the corresponding behavior to back up what it preached. And we have to be people who have both. We cannot, we've got to stop doing this as a culture. We've got to stop being enamored with gifting. We've got to stop being enamored with this. We saw the qualifications for pastors and elders last week. There is exactly one that has to do with gifting and it's extremely benign, able to teach. Is the brother able to teach? That's all the gifting we need to focus on. And then we need to pay attention to character. Does, is there corresponding character to go along with that gifting? We have got to stop with this nonsense of, but the preaching's so good. That's not enough. We have to be people who facilitate and build up from within culture that corresponds with the message that we preach. On the last day, church, we have to understand it is not just going to be false teachers that are going to be judged. It is going to also be the congregations who tolerated them. Paul speaks of those who in the last days will have itching ears. They're just going to accumulate for themselves teachers who are going to speak to their own satisfaction, whether it's political or culture, whatever. They're just going to find people who preach what they want to hear, not recognizing that those teachers are actually God's judgment on them because they've rejected the gospel. And it's just happening in spades all across our culture today. We have to be in tune to this. And last, what we see this morning, that this is a challenge. And I'm going to speak more into this just to clarify here that the challenge is to honor leaders whose doctrine and lives are worthy of the gospel. And this is a two-way street for us. This is a two-way street for, for me as a pastor, for our pastors, our elders, for, for you as a congregation. There's a mutual responsibility uh, that we have to one another. Would you just turn with me for, for a moment as we close out here to Hebrews chapter 13, verses 17 and 18. And, and here, uh, the writer of Hebrews is speaking to how pastors, how congregations, how it is we relate to one another. And there's a two-way street. It's a mutual responsibility that we have to each other as the body of Christ. So this is Hebrews 13, verses 17 and 18. 
It says, obey your leaders and submit to them for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning for that would be of no advantage to you. And here's the invitation, pray for us. For we are sure that we have a clear conscience desiring to act honorably in all things. So here's the two-way street. We have a responsibility to, to lead you in love. We have a responsibility to shepherd you faithfully, to keep watch over your souls. And you know what I love this morning is that I get to stand up here this morning. I get to talk about the, the, the dozen or so guys who are serving as pastors and elders in this church family. And I get to tell you without any reservation and full confidence, these, these men, they love Jesus. They love this church and they love you. And every single one of us, if we're, when we're being honest, every single one of us will admit to you we never perfectly fulfill everything that's been entrusted to us. We're gonna fall short. Our commitment to you is not to be perfect as pastors and elders because we're never gonna be perfect as pastors and elders. What we do hope that we're doing well is imperfectly and repentantly stumbling towards Jesus. And the hope is that even through man, some of our flaws, our inadequacies that you would see through us to see the perfect good shepherd who is Jesus Christ, who will never leave you, who will never forsake you, who will never let you down. And our, our calling is to do our very best to model the love and the nurturing care and the shepherding love of Jesus Christ to you. And then the call of the church is to come under those who have willingly laid themselves down for you, trusting that we have your best in mind, trusting that we are seeking the best for you in the Lord, not our own selfish desires. And when we are disqualifying ourselves from what it is that God has called his shepherds and his pastors to be, see through the imperfections of imperfect leaders to see the perfection of Jesus Christ. And so that's what we're gonna do this morning as we come to the table. I just encourage you to bow your heads with me. I wanna give us a quick reflection here before we, we come to the table for communion. It's at the table where we see the perfect love of Jesus poured out for us. His body was broken for us, his blood was shed for us. And so I wanna encourage you just to come to him this morning in confession of sin, come to him in repentance, trusting that he is not gonna lord his authority over you, but he's welcoming you to himself to pour out on you grace and mercy, not guilt and shame, grace and mercy, to show you his love, how he's made a way for you to be reconciled to him. So fathers, we come to this table this morning as we confess sin, as we repent, as we lay it before you, we ask that you would be glorified as we sing, as we partake, as we follow your lead. Lord, help us to be on guard against those who do not faithfully imitate your son, Jesus Christ, and help us to faithfully imitate him and to reflect his love in the world as we lead and as we guide, as we shepherd, Lord, that there would be that this, this beautiful sacred trust that's built within this body of believers here, that we would walk in unity to the glory of your name and that you would be glorified now as we sing and respond and worship. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen, amen.